Let's uh, once again open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians as we march our way through this book of the Bible uh, that is so relevant to the life of our church. And uh, I pray that you've been learning and growing through this study. And so we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8 tonight. 1 Corinthians in chapter number 8. And we're going to cover, hopefully, if I do my job well, the whole chapter tonight. Now, let me, let me kind of preface the passage tonight, because I think if, if we just jump into the passage, we're going to be kind of lost. We really need some context if we're going to really understand the passage tonight. And so let's think about this. Um, I want you to think about all of life and, and decisions, we could really break down into two categories. There are what I would call matters of morality, okay? Those are issues that the Bible is black and white about. They're very clear. There is no debate. And we've covered a lot of those issues in First Corinthians, haven't we? The Bible's black and white, right? Uh, fornication should not be named among you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. He talks about all sorts of other things, divisiveness and things like that, that we were dealing with in the earlier chapters. Maybe another way we could write about this and, and define this is it's the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots of the Bible. Okay? Properly understood, of course. Um, and then, it's not supposed to be a, a plural, but a matters of conscience. Matters of conscience. What do I mean by matters of conscience? These are things that in life, they're not a matter of right and wrong. Uh, they are things that we may feel we have a very strong position about, and you may even feel we have a Bible reason for them, but we cannot say that they are black and white in the Bible, and one of the best ways to determine that is say, are there Bible-loving, Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christians who disagree about this even when presented the, the same evidence you have? then we discover there are a lot of matters of conscience. There are a lot of things that are not black and white and that um, we have to make a decision about, okay? Uh, and there's a, a lot of issues that fall in this category, aren't there? Where you work, it's not a black and white thing. God gives you moral agency to choose where you work. But here's the real issue with the matters of conscience thing. There exists a potential that something you think is wrong in your conscience to not be wrong in my conscience, right? Or vice versa, right? There exists a potential that something that is wrong in my conscience, it's not a black and white thing, but I'm convinced I have a Bible reason for it and, I, and I'm persuaded about it and I think it's the best way to live life and it's not just a very, very trivial thing like Apple or Android, but it, it, there are bigger things that are in this category, but something that violates my conscience doesn't violate yours. And so what happens, this is the question of our text, in a church setting, when one brother's conscience says something is not a big deal, and another sister's conscience says something is a big deal, what happens when consciences clash? 
What happens when as a church on these conscientious issues that are not black and white, we have a measure of disagreement about them? Well, I know what happens sometimes. Fingers start being pointed. Someone accuses the other of not loving the Bible, or occasionally the word compromiser gets thrown out there. That's always a favorite one. Someone says something like this, brother, my friends all feel the same way, and so you shouldn't do that. It must be the right thing. Someone else says, well, you're all over-exaggerating on this issue. The Bible doesn't say anything about it. If you just read your Bible, you'd figure that out. You shouldn't be so bothered about this thing. The question we have to ask ourselves, because the reality does exist, what do we do as people when our consciences clash over a certain gray area of life? What do we do? Our passage tonight is going to give us some instruction about that and great, it's a great thing for us that we can get some clarity about this because this can lead to some very heated arguments in the church. Now, what the main question in this text is a question none of us are really worried about tonight. Should a Christian, this is the real debate of the day, should a Christian eat meat offered to idols? Now, we're all like, don't care about that, right? We don't care about that. Well, I, I understand but I think it's important for you to understand the, the details of this issue because if we don't properly understand that issue of meat offered idols, we'll actually misapply this passage. We'll misunderstand it. We'll misapply uh, it. And we'll either overapply it and say something that is more strong than what it says, or we will say something in the passage that is too soft than what it says if we do not understand the issue at hand. I want to give you just a brief understanding of this idea of meat offered to idols. And I promise you, if you understand this issue, not only will it help you with this message, but the, buckle up, the next three chapters have to deal with this issue, okay? So we've got to get some grounding on this, okay? In Corinth, it would be very different than our day because Corinth was a city that was filled with idol temples, right? In the same way, that uh, it seems like small town America is dotted with dollar generals. That's the same way maybe Corinth was filled with idol temples, right? Or uh, maybe some of us are like, I wish we had more options than just Mexican food. There's too many Mexican food places. Let me, give me some other ideas. Let me, give me some other types of cuisine. I mean, in Corinth, tons of idol temples. Tons of idol temples. And it was a city that though there was economic opportunity, there's a lot of people in poverty. The temples in their day, what we have to realize is that the temple was used in the same way people would use like an event center or a restaurant. Now, actual idol worship went on there, but the idea of having a dedicated restaurant or event center is very foreign to first century life, especially in Corinth. They would use the temples because they had big facilities for these types of occasions. And if you were, seriously, if you were going to a kid's birthday party, if that was a cultural thing, but you know, the equivalent, quinceanera, wedding, it was, it would be very common for that event to be held in an idol's temple. And for that event to feature meat that was left over from an offering, you know, they get their meat and they sacrifice to the gods, maybe some fire, lighting that thing up, smoking it up. Well, you all know what happens at the end of an idol being offered meat, right? Nothing. 
The meat's still there because <laughs> idols don't eat because they don't exist, right? So at these temple parties, essentially, people would be serving this meat that was offered to idols. Now, another thing we have to understand is that religion and social events were not separated. In America, like, it, those two are very separated, right? But to be Corinthian was to be pagan. Uh, I think the closest thing I've seen that's more common, you know, if we don't want to go to Middle Eastern type culture, is, is how a lot of Hispanic families are, that to be Hispanic is to be Catholic. Uh, there's a family in our church that was explaining that to us, that if you are not a Catholic in most Hispanic families, you are very, very strange, very strange. And it's very similar in, I think, the Corinthian culture that if you were not pagan and if you would not celebrate pagan holidays and if you would not attend events at the pagan temple, you were not just weird, you weren't even Corinthian. You were not American, in a sense. It would be like that um, 4th of July was also celebrated by offering a feast unto a god. That's how intertwined paganism and patriotism were. And so if you abstained from these events and you said, I'm not gonna go to an idol's temple and I'm not gonna eat meat that was offered in an idol's temple, here's what would happen. You would immediately become a social outcast. Your upward mobility through your company would be over that day. You would be weird and estranged from your family. But on the other hand, for a Christian to partake in those things, to many people, seemed like it was someone dancing with the demonic. It seemed anti-Christian to eat meat that was offered to these idols. And so here's what happened, and I'm almost done with the context here. Here's what happened. You had two groups in the church, two factions in the church. Uh, this is sounding very familiar with Corinth, isn't it? They just love them, some factions. So you had two groups in the church. You had the people in the church who rejected any meat offered to idols, they were anti-meat offered to idols people. They would say things like this, this is sinful. Why on earth would you eat something that was around a bunch of demonic idols? It might be contaminated by those demonic influences. They would see you walking into maybe one of those social gatherings and say, you must be an idol worshiper. You're like, no, I'm just going to a birthday party, bro. And they say, no, you're a pagan. How could you? Do you not know what the Bible says? There is only one God. If they were at a, someone's house and meat was put in front of them, they might say something like this before they even bit into the food. Of course, after saying grace, they would say this. Where'd you get that meat? Ah, uh, I don't eat meat offered to idols. Because I'm a Christian, I believe that there's only one God. That was one faction in the church, okay? The other faction in the church was those who partook of meat offered to idols. Now, we don't know every setting in which this happened, but if you read chapters 8, 9, 10, it's clear that they either ate this meat in the temple um, for various events. They maybe ate this meat even as a part of a pagan worship service, and we'll get to that. Or they sometimes ate it in someone's private home or their own private home. There was a lot of settings in which this meat was eaten, right? It was sold in the market on a discount. I mean, who, who doesn't love some discounted groceries, praise God, right? And so people would eat it in their home and they thought this is not a big deal. I don't believe in idols. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm just eating meat that I could not afford otherwise. I'm just going to this kid's birthday party. 
I'm just going to my friend's wedding. What's the big deal? Let me be clear here. Our passage, in attempting to speak to both of those groups, will not make either of them happy. To those who are stringently against eating meat off to idols, Paul is going to give them some theological background that will force them to consider the fact that these guys are not morally wrong in most of what they're doing. And so they'll have to stop using certain language and stop being so condemning and judgmental. But for these people who thought there was nothing wrong, Paul is also going to challenge them. And he's going to call them to sacrifice and to not partake in certain liberties so that they could better serve their Christian brothers and sisters who were in this camp. Quite literally, as any preacher often does, they, Paul is going to preach this message in chapter eight and make nobody happy. Everybody in the room is going to be forced to face some uncomfortable truths that they don't like. And what I want to warn you of is that maybe in my explanation of this message, I'm going to bring up issues that you want to place in the top category that I'm quite convinced are in the bottom category. And I would warn you before you get too upset to recognize that it's my job in this passage to match the Apostle Paul's tone and principle and to challenge you in some areas maybe you've not been challenged in when it comes to theology. So, uh, and then you might say, well, I have unresolved questions. I don't know how you could say that. Well, we could sit together and study the Bible together and see why I place it in a category. But I want to be specific because, I mean, we apply the Bible in every other text. There's no reason for me to be a chicken and not apply it here, is there? I mean, that's what you come to church for, the Bible applied to life. So we're going to do that this evening. Our passage gives us two sides of a coin. And that's how the message will break down. Two sides of a coin. The passage is going to show us that knowledge permits liberties. And then it's going to show us that love limits liberties. Knowledge permits liberties, but love limits liberties. I want you to see that first one in verses four through six, that knowledge permits liberties. And I I, got to be concise the best I can, but what I want to just throw out here is that in verses four through six, here's what Paul's doing. Paul is conceding. He's acknowledging that the people who ate meat offered to idols were not committing a moral sin. He quotes in verse four, the Shema, which is from uh, Deuteronomy. Um, I don't have the reference. I think it's Deuteronomy six. Look at verse number four of chapter number eight. He says, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice and idols, here's what his argument is. We know that an idol is nothing in the world. And here's where he quotes the Shema. And that there is none other God but one. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6 
was kind of like the equivalent to our John 3.16, right? John 3.16 is the verse that every Christian probably has memorized, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, right? We all know that, right? In Hebrew, in Jewish culture, everyone knew the Shema. You said it all the time. And it, the Shema begins like this. It's, it's quite literally one of the more important verses in the Old Testament because the Shema defined what was most unique about Jewish religion. They were monotheistic. They didn't worship idols. Because the Shema starts this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And it's followed by verses you might be more familiar with. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and all thy soul and all thy might. Right? That's the Shema. That's what Jesus was quoting about the greatest commandments. And this was a definitive passage for the Jews because it defined the fact that they were monotheistic. They believed in one God. And what Paul says in verse number five is that these idols that are called, quote, gods are not gods at all. Now that would have been really strange to a Jewish person. And then he says in verse number six that our devotion as Christians is entirely devoted to our one God. And this is a great verse about the Trinity, by the way. Because in expressing that Paul acknowledges there's one God, he says that there is one God and he is God and Jesus. Look at verse number six. He says, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things and we in him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we by him. He equivocates God the Father with God the Son. Ask your Mormon friend to explain that one for you. They can't, they can't. He is equivalent. They are one God, but they are two persons. And what I want you to notice in this passage, which is really important, and we'll add more detail and flavor to it later in chapter 10, but what Paul is saying here to the people who rejected meat offered to idols, he's saying, listen, they're not worshiping other gods because idols aren't gods. They're not real. And what Paul's doing is he's laying a theological foundation here so that these brothers and sisters in Christ could recognize that though they may differ on a matter of conscience, their brothers and sisters across the aisle were not morally wrong. He's recategorizing an issue. An issue they thought was a matter of morality. He's saying, no, they have not violated scripture. It's a matter of conscience. And what I want us to notice as American Christians about this passage is this portion is several things. Number one, I want you to notice that when defining this issue, Paul appeals to scripture, not to tradition or preference. Paul appeals to scripture, not to tradition or preference. I think, church family, it's important for us in these gray areas that we need to be okay and we need to not get defensive when someone asks this. Does the Bible actually say that? I've been around some Christians who are like, when you say, I don't know if the Bible says that, or they state a theological position, and you say, where is that in the Bible? They act as though you're arrogant for asking that question. Friends, if, if your son or daughter asks you a question about the Bible, and you assume that it's arrogance that makes them ask that question, you're not gonna do a whole lot of good for helping your kid love the Bible and walk in it. You're not gonna do a whole lot of good for another church member who asked that or a pastor who asked that. We have to be willing to say, hold up. I'm not saying that you're a dummy. 
I'm just asking, could you show me in the Bible where it says that? And the reason why a lot of folks really don't like that question is because when we actually search the scriptures, we recognize that the Bible doesn't actually say something about it. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, actually, the Bible doesn't say this is wrong. The Bible tells us that there is one God and we worship him, but it doesn't say that this, that, that idea means that this meat is now magically contaminated by the idols it was offered to. So I would encourage you, when we think about these debatable issues, and you're tempted to condemn or judge another Christian over these debatable issues, to ask yourself, does the Bible actually condemn that? Does the Bible speak against that? Now, this is where I get really uncomfortable because I'm going to start naming some things, okay? So I'm, I'm nervous, but be, be kind, all right? We, we ought to ask the question. This is a, a hot topic, so I'm, I'm bringing it up, be, not because I have an ax to grind here, or I think someone else has an ax to grind here, but because it's a good way to apply this. We have to ask ourselves this question. Does the Bible actually condemn drinking in moderation? Does it? Now, I know well-meaning Christians have preached a position of abstinence. And, and y'all who are getting mad at me, just hold on, all right? You, I'll, I'll, I'll lay my cards out here in a minute. I don't think the Bible commands us, black and white, to abstain from all, all alcoholic things. Now, I don't have enough time to go into that. That's a long thing. Uh, but here's what I'll say. There are multiple Greek and Hebrew words that express alcoholic beverages, And every single one of those Greek and Hebrew words are in Bible verses that say something positive about it and, by the way, negative about it. Now, what we do know, let's be real clear, drunkenness is a black and white issue. Are we in at least agreement on that, right? Drunkenness is... But we do have to concede in in Christian love and charity and in deference, we do have to concede that there can be other views on this issue. Now, how do we reconcile that? Well, we reconcile that we should not as as a church, and I praise God for this, I know a lot of churches who do, we should not as a church require someone to be a teetotaler to join our church or to be um, in certain positions because the Bible doesn't do that. Um, in fact, what's interesting to me, I was going over the qualifications of a deacon, uh, reading those recently, and it says that deacons should not be given to much wine. Interesting. Now, again, I'm going to explain to you that, that I, I take a, a strong abstinence position. I'll explain why, and I actually think this passage speaks very strongly to that. But I'll get there in a minute. But we do have to concede that maybe privately or in moderation that the Bible may not actually speak to that. And if you have questions about that, I'm happy to do a Bible study about that. Um, the Bible doesn't speak to a lot of other things, okay? Um, though there are biblical issues that entail politics, we do have to concede that the Bible does not say in black and white, thou shalt vote for this candidate. Correct? Correct. Okay. And I, I know sometimes in, in Christianity that it could be really, really black and white. Like, bless God, you're not a Bible-believing Christian if you don't re- re- vote Republican all down the ticket. But what we have to recognize is there are well-meaning, Bible-believing people who don't want babies to be killed who actually disagree on this matter. And you might have to ask yourself, well, why on earth do they do that? Because there are other moral issues they think that maybe a different platform accomplishes and they prioritize those issues differently or they think there are better policy solutions to those than one presented by a party. And again, I'll lay my cards on the table. 
I'm a red-blooded Republican. I've never voted for a Democrat in my life, but I'm saying this from the pulpit because I believe it's true, okay? There are issues of holidays and days, right? The issue of the Sabbath was a real debate in the church world then, and it actually still is a debate in the church world now. And what we have to concede is, yes, there are probably some strong scriptural arguments for some Sabbath regulations and a a spectrum of those two, but there are also some strong scriptural positions that give us freedom in that area. This is a gray area. Um, Holidays. I don't know if you've ever known someone who thinks it's wrong to celebrate Christmas or uh, Halloween, right? Boot the zoo. I, I, I have one or two people mention concerns about that that don't actually, are not members of our church. I know our church at large loves that event, but um, these are issues that can be debatable, are they not? But here's what both sides of the issue have to concede. There is no black and white scripture that says it's wrong for your kid to go to the zoo and get candy from a bunch of people dressed in costumes. Now it is wrong to worship pagan gods, but no one's doing that trick-or-treating, Okay. Right, And so we have to concede that the Bible doesn't actually say something about that. There are minor, and I know this might make some of you feel weird, there are minor issues of doctrine, debatable issues of doctrine, that we have to come to a place of deference and, 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 and showing love to others and not saying that we are black and white right about something, when it is a minor issue of doctrine. Now, I'm not talking about the deity of Christ or certain other things that are, that are very big in Scripture, but we have to concede that there is a reason some other people might believe differently about certain minor doctrinal differences. It's not because they hate the Bible or they're stupid. They may believe different than you about the end times or about a variety of other things. And we have to recognize that there are doctrinal issues that fit in this category. And when we have questions about that, let's be quick to ask what the Bible says. And let's remember that the Bible also says things that you may not be aware of that strongly support a different position. And that's okay. That's okay. Decisions of entertainment. Should a Christian watch a rated R movie? Yes or no? I don't know. But certainly, I don't think that because a movie has a lot of gore and profanity that it's morally wrong to be in front of that. I don't think it's morally wrong to do that. I don't think the Bible condemns that. Now, we have to make very clear decisions about that, and I have some pretty conservative views on that. But I would say that this is not a black and white thing, and we've got to use our conscience, and we've also got to follow the second half of this message in regards to those. Notice this, Paul doesn't tell one group of the church that they need to concede for the other group of the church. Here's not what Paul says. Hey, y'all, less conservative people who eat meat off idols, stop eating meat off idols because it's making all the conservative people mad. He doesn't say that. In fact, in chapter number 10, he's going to strongly defend their liberty in certain settings to eat meat offered to idols. And by the way, he's going to encourage the people who are against it in certain settings to eat it without their conscience being offended. So I've heard this passage particularly preach that, well, if someone is offended, then you should just come to their side. No, that's not what it teaches, actually. Paul says that we don't need to change our private practice if there is no moral issues at hand. He says, though, in public, there may need to be some deference. He is not saying that we should, as a church, create a culture where, as a church, we need everyone in our church to agree about a gray area. 
No, we're not. Here's what, here's what Paul's saying. The Corinthian church needs to be big enough to hold people who disagree about gray areas. And if the Corinthian church should be big enough to hold people who disagree about gray areas, Fellowship Baptist Church should be big enough to hold people who disagree about gray areas. It shouldn't be like, oh no, our church is compromising. No, it's okay. It's okay. This is not a new thing. Number three, Paul is educating people in the church with a weak conscience. Now, you may say, well, that seems really rude. What are you saying, weak? Well, that's actually in the passage. Okay, look at verse number 10. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is, what's the next word? Weak. Be emboldened to eat those things which are off idols. Paul in this passage, and he will in more ways in chapters 9 and 10, though he's going to argue strongly for limiting our liberties here in a minute, he is, as we work through these chapters of Scripture, he is saying to the people who, for lack of a better term, are more conservative, uh, more cautious, he is laying a theological foundation to challenge their assumptions. And, and, and that's what we all need to be willing to do. It's a great place in Christianity when we can say, you know what, I'm willing to let my, my preconceived notions and my assumptions be challenged by another brother in Christ who knows the Bible or sister in Christ who knows the Bible because all of us, here's the thing, matters of morality are not up for debate, but our conscience is not always the best guide. Every one of us in this room can think back in times in our life where we thought it was wrong to do X, Y, or Z. And now with more clarity and time, we realize it wasn't wrong. Right? So conscience is not a perfect guide. And so conscience needs to be shaped by the scripture. Now, if that doesn't stretch you, maybe this one will, okay? So here's what Paul says. Knowledge permits liberties, but number two, love limits liberties. And, and I wanna really march through the logic of these six verses as efficiently as I can. Here's the overall argument in verses seven through 13. That in these gray areas, Paul's saying this. Love limits liberties when it causes my brother to sin. Okay? That condition's really important. Okay? So let's, let's march through the logic here. The issue of meeting meat offered to idols was not a black and white issue. There was no clear command that said, thou shalt not eat, or a principal command that was very clear, you should not eat meat that was previously offered to an idol. That was not in itself immoral, okay? But look at verse number seven. Verse number seven says this, how be it, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. What's Paul saying here? No, this is not a black and white issue, but there are people in your church that you love and you care about who had such close ties. Every time they think of that meat, they remember when they used to be a pagan. And they see you, we'll get here in a minute, walking into an idol's temple and they cannot distinguish 
that you're not going there to worship because that's all the association they've ever had with that. Now, that's not the only criteria here. Verse number eight, Paul says this, that eating meat, uh, let me put it this way. I'll read the verse here in a minute. Indulging in this particular liberty did not add anything positive to the life of the Corinthians. He's like, it's not like eating meat offered to idols like makes you closer to God. Look at verse eight. He says, but meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Now, there's some people in church who are like, no, 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 if you eat meat off the idols, you're a pagan. And Paul says, no, you're not. Okay? So he says, it's not a black and white issue, but there are some people in your church who don't have that knowledge. And so when they see you eating this, it causes them not to just be annoyed or upset. No, that's not the criteria. It causes them to be tempted to go back to their old lifestyle of worshiping idols. Now, let's make sure we're all in agreement on this. Is worshiping idols a black and white issue? Okay, yeah, pretty black and white, right? So here's what Paul's gonna argue in verses nine through 11. I'll read it in a second. The potential exists for a brother in Christ to see another brother in Christ eating meat in a temple. And the temple is a big part of this. And thus, that weaker brother may then drift into full-blown idolatry. Okay? Look at verse 9 through 11. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge, this is very strong language, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? So then verses 12 through 13, Paul concludes his argument about love limiting liberties. He says then, Therefore, if your actions lead another brother or sister to drift into a moral sin, right? Then now you, in fact, are sinning against Christ. Look at verse 12. But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, Ye sin against Christ. And in verse 13, he says this. That's why if meat makes my brother to stumble or to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth. So here's the principle. Love limits my liberties when my liberties cause my brother to sin. Now we've got to come to an agreement on, on that disclaimer. Because it's easy for us to read verse 13 when we say, if it offends my brother, for us to think, well, me eating meat makes them upset because they think I shouldn't. That's not what Paul's saying, okay? So if you got a brother, sister, or maybe you got an adult parent, let's just say, I'm not saying this is at all true in our church. Let's say you got an adult parent who's very conservative and thinks that you should dress a certain way. You're an adult, you're a full-grown adult, and you think, I have the ability to dress this way, right? Old school IFB churches had a lot of issues about dress, didn't they? What Paul's not saying is, well, if it makes grandma or mom upset, then you shouldn't do it. No, he's saying that if it led them to commit a moral sin, then you probably shouldn't do it, right? 
Do we see the, just the difference there? It, it's not about, well, this upsets the, the conservative folk, so let's not do it. It's the concern is, if this would cause someone to go down a path of moral sin, it is unchristlike for me to indulge in my liberty publicly. Now, again, Paul's going to say, you can eat meat offered to idols privately. Not a big deal. And he's also, by the way, going to bar them from eating in the temple. He's going to say that that's a real issue. But this is the principle at hand. So Paul is not saying that in a clash of consciences, the most conservative and most loud person wins. He's not saying that. He's saying that if our liberty is causing someone to drift from Christ, and I think the wording in verse number 11, we have to appreciate how severe this is. That word perish, um, can we think of other verses that talk about perishing and what context that is? There's a strong argument to be made that he's talking about full-blown apostasy. Someone rejecting Christianity and thus ending up in hell. So this is a very severe consequence. He's saying, listen, as a Christian, you should never want your other brother in Christ to abandon Christ because they see you indulging in your liberty. So in what ways does this principle maybe apply to life? And I'm not saying these maybe are things you and I need to do because these may be issues that we all agree on. I don't know. But let me revisit the alcohol one, okay? I said, I don't, I'm, I'm convinced the Bible does not condemn private drinking in moderation. I'm convinced of that. I don't, and here's why. Number one, I don't know my own self and how I could go into addiction on that. Uh, there's a lot of studies about some of the genetics behind that. I'm scared of that stuff. But I do think alcohol fits in this category pretty well because would we not agree that the Bible agree that the Bible strongly condemns drunkenness. The Bible actually says that those who are drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That is an issue that the church can excommunicate someone for is public drunkenness. Okay, so it's, it seems very similar to idolatry because actually idolatry is in the same list. Now here's what's crazy: Would we also agree that it could cause a brother who? deals with the sin of drunkenness more than us to stumble if he sees another brother at the bar and thus his conscience is emboldened and he goes down that path of addiction. Does that possibility exist? It does. I think it's a very strong possibility. And so because drunkenness is such a prevalent and awful sin, here's what I, I would challenge those who maybe do drink. I would challenge you that you should really think about strongly abstaining from public drinking. Now, I, I, I wouldn't go so strong to say that's a black and white thing. I, I think the principle here really suggests that. I do also think that maybe Paul's words about eating meat in private in chapter 10 might find similar application to this issue as well. You know, an issue that's similar to alcohol is gambling. I've often been asked this, Pastor Mike, how can going and buying a, a lottery ticket at the gas station be wrong if people waste their money on all sorts of other dumb things? And to that I say, touche, touche. I don't know if I could say that black and white, if you go buy a lottery ticket at the gas station, you're a sinner. But gambling is highly addictive. And it is highly addictive not just to you, but to other people. And so maybe we ought to 
express some moderation in public when it comes to this. And I would strongly warn you to not indulge in any gambling at all. I worked at a bank. Uh, Mark's not here. Boy, oh boy, in Oklahoma, did I see a lot of people on Fridays getting some cash out of the bank to go to the casinos. I didn't know casinos were that popular until I worked at a bank. You know, uh, growing up sheltered and all that. What about entertainment issues? What movies is it okay to watch? Well, again, I, I think there are probably some movies I could tell you it's immoral to watch certain content. I'm not saying that the, the Bible says nothing about that. But I will say, um, and I, I'll say this too, I'm not going to be the pastor who names all the TV shows that's sinful to watch. You know, I know a pastor who like is always up to date on all the bad TV shows, which you always wonder, how do they know, right? How do they know? But he'll tell his church, you shouldn't watch this. Your kids shouldn't watch that. You shouldn't watch that. Y'all, I'm not going there. But what I would say is that we should be careful if we've maybe got some friends coming over that we ought to be very deferential in what entertainment we consume as a group. I can actually remember one time when Shelby and I uh, were early in the ministry in Liberal, we went to someone's house and uh, this guy asked me, have you seen this show? I'm like, no. He says, it's a superhero show. And I'm like, oh, cool. I, I could watch a superhero show. That doesn't sound like a bad idea. And then as, you know, half-naked girls are being pranced across the screen, I'm a staff member at this guy's house, and he's wanting us to watch this. I'm thinking, what on earth have I been in, engaging in here? So we got to be careful that we, though we may have a private position of liberty on something, that we're very careful around other people. Maybe if we have a brother or sister or a cousin or a nephew or a grandkid whose their standards are really conservative, we should be very careful not to publicly go against those standards so that those kids or, or that spouse is not tempted to rebel against their own God-given authority, right? I had someone who visited our church who was really concerned about the Halloween thing. And here's what I told, told this person. I said, listen, um, our, our church is going to publicly engage in these events. But here's what I can tell you. I will never preach from the pulpit in a way that makes you look stupid in front of your kids. And, and I will never say that you not being a part of this event is gonna make you a sinner or a bad person in our church. So, so there's ways even that we interact with people in this that is an expression of Christian liberty and love. There's so many other ways. I can't possibly apply this passage, but, but I wanted to give you the principle in black and white because this will help you. This will really help you. But here's what Paul is saying. In verses one through three, he summarizes his argument. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Let me summarize Paul's thoughts for you. Liberty is good, but love is better. Knowledge can produce arrogance, but true love always builds up others. I like verse number two. Paul says basically this, knowledge is one of those things that we usually don't have when we think we have it. But verse three says this, that love is what brings true knowledge when we are known by God out of our love for him. So what do we do when consciences clash? We recognize the truth of the Bible and that there are things the Bible does say. But friends, there are things the Bible is not clear on. 
There are things the Bible's not clear on. There are debatable gray areas in the Bible. And so we do not compromise on what the Bible does say, but we need to be careful to acknowledge what it doesn't clearly say. But then, those of us who may take a, a more lenient position, we need to be careful and think about our actions and say, is, it, is there the potential that a weaker brother in Christ could see me indulging this and then commit a moral sin or a sister? And when that's the case, Paul says it becomes a black and white issue. You then have sinned against Christ. And so out of love for that brother, the same love Jesus had on the cross dying for you, you die to yourself and you sacrifice so they don't get pushed into moral sin. Knowledge permits liberties, but love limits liberties. Father, give us discernment today and to this week and in the rest of our lives to properly apply your truth. It takes a lot of humility for us to be willing to have our consciences educated and strengthened. Lord, it, it sometimes takes a lot of time to sort out what's black and white and what's not, but God, help us as people to defer to love, to defer to service, and not to judgmentalism or condemnation. Lord, help us as people in a church to recognize that our church should be big enough to hold people in it who disagree on gray areas, who disagree on things that are not the most important. They are not gospel. They are not secondary issues that quite literally make up the fabric of what we define as a church. They are things that rank beneath that. Lord, help us to have the right spirit regarding those issues. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.